Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 12, 28 through chapter 13 and verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. It's 948, page 948 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have one at home, uh, you may certainly take this one uh, so that you have a Bible at home. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Thank you, Ted, for reading this morning. And I thank Steve as well for saying way too much this morning. <laughs> and I'm thankful for all of you and how you have uh, pray prayed for me and encouraged and supported as I've been taking classes, and I also want to say that the real MVP is uh, the one who stays at home with the kids while the other one is uh, studying, and so very thankful to Shan and her ministry with our family and how she um, constantly gives to the family. So uh, excited to uh, share God's Word with you this morning. It's, it's been uh, four months since I've had the privilege to preach, and so I've sort of bottled up everything from the last four months that I've had to say, and it's all coming out now, so hope you're ready. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, sort of. <laughs> um, I do, though. I do feel what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 39 when he said, My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. I feel that. And so I'm excited to share uh, Hebrews as we study Hebrews together this morning. And before we jump in, I'd like to uh, begin just with a word of prayer. So let's, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. God, again, we come to you this morning thanking you that you have given us your Word. And we thank you for the privilege, uh, as, as Ted did, to be able to stand here and to read your Word openly. Thank you that you have communicated to us. You've not let us, uh, left us in the dark and thank you that through your word, there is life and encouragement. And this morning, we want to ask that you would encourage our souls through what we have here today, the fact that you keep us, you are, you, we have security in Jesus. Would you encourage us with these truths? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to jump right in, and what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to try to do four things. I'd like to explain the connection between Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 uh, as it connects to Hebrews chapter 12 and the whole chapter. 
Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole chapter of Hebrews 12. Uh, But second, I'd like to show you from these verses in Hebrews 13 how contentment or how security is actually the motivation for contentment. And then third, I want to answer a really important question that comes up when we talk about security, especially in the book of Hebrews. And then we'll finish by seeing how security produces faith. And so those are the four things we're going to try to do this morning. So let's start, first of all, with the context. And believe it or not, Pastor Matt preached the first sermon in Hebrews 12. And he preached it on February 6, 2022. And some of you you that have been coming recently are like, who's Pastor Matt? (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) It's been a while. That was over a year ago. And so what that means is there's probably a lot between Hebrews 12, 1 and Hebrews 13, 5, and 6 that we could easily miss that are actually really important for us. And so uh, we need to understand what the context is. Anytime we're studying Scripture, it's important not to just, you know, open your Bible to a random passage and point there and read, but it's important to understand what is the context of that verse. And I think we all get this, right? So, like, if I told you that it was 5.30 a.m. and it's time to get up, some of you would think, no, it's time to hit the snooze button about four or five more times (laughs) and then get up. Um, But if I told you that it's 5.30 a.m. on the first day of harvest, then some of you would be like, oh, scramble around, run. Okay, I'm I'm an hour late to get to work, so I need to get out. I need to get going. I'm I'm behind. (laughs) So that little piece of context helps you understand what we're talking about. Or what if I told you that the score is 14 to 7? The score is 14 to 7. So you're like, okay. Uh, maybe some of you are thinking, well, that sounds like a pretty close game. It's only one touchdown apart, right? But what if I told you that the, the sport is soccer? <laughs> some of you are like, oh, who knew soccer could actually be fun? (laughs) All those goals, that'd be great if there was that many goals in the soccer game. Okay, but the point is that little bit of context actually helps you to understand the details. And I think we can, in fact, we could say, if you don't understand the context, then you can't really completely understand the details. The details only make sense when you understand the context. And so I think the same is true of Scripture. So we're going to read this morning, be content, and that sounds like a good moral lesson, doesn't it? Um, Or we're going to read, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and that sounds like a good phrase to frame and put up on your wall because it's really just uplifting, right? But I think we better understand these principles, what God calls us to, and this, this promise that he gives us. I think we better understand these things when we understand where we've come from in this book of Hebrews. And so what I'd like to do is quickly, very quickly, recap Hebrews 12 so that we kind of understand where we've come from so that we can better understand our text this morning. And so Hebrews 12, if you look at your Bibles in Hebrews 12, it opens this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Okay, so, so these great clouds of witnesses, he's, he's looking back on Hebrews chapter 11, where we got all these portraits of faith, these people who have lived through faith, they have lived by faith, and they've made it all the way to the end of the race. They weren't perfect, but they made it, and they lived by faith. And so in view of these portraits, the author calls, calls us, he calls you and me, so you must run the race. Lay aside these weights and run the race 
that God has called us to run. Uh, run the Christian race, the, the life of faith. And we are to do this while we're looking to Jesus, because he's the one who has actually put us in the race by saving us and will see us through all the way to the end of the race. Do you see that? In verse, uh, <clears throat> oh, now I lost it. In verse 4, I believe it is, or maybe it's uh, 2, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the one who got us in the race, and the perfecter, the one who completes, who, who sees us through all the way to the end. Now, but sometimes, okay, so we get there to, to, to verse like, I don't know, 4 or so, but we, then we realize sometimes the, the Christian race is difficult. Sometimes life is hard. I mean, all kinds of difficult things happen. We get tired. We get sore legs when we're running a race. Sometimes we hear discouraging shouts or another runner pushes us and we fall over in emotional pain or we get distracted ourselves and we look over our shoulder, we miss and we trip and we fall. In this, life of, uh, in this race of life, we often grow weary Sometimes because of other people's unkindness and sometimes because of our own sin. But the writer of Hebrews encourages us uh, in verse, later, later in verse 12, lift up your drooping hands so you fall into the ground. Lift yourself up, strengthen those weak needs, and continue running the race. And the reason you can do this is because you know that God is using all of the difficulties in life he is sovereignly stringing these events together so that you will actually have the endurance that's needed to actually run the race. When we lack the discipline to run, he disciplines us as a kind father so that we would have the discipline that is needed to continue running the race, ultimately so that we would make it safely to the finish line. So this is Hebrews 12 verses 5 all the way through 17. And then we come to verse 18. And in verse 18, we are told why we should keep running the race. And the reason is because we've not come to the old covenant. And we have some really unique and interesting verses and like, what is going on there? And Pastor Wood explained that, so I'm not going to try to explain it again. But we've not come to the old covenant. The writer depicts this extremely fearful old covenant event on Mount Sinai where there's, there's this fire and smoke and, and it's like scary and these people are left in fear. And this makes sense because when sinners come into the presence of a completely holy and perfect God, there is reason to fear. And in verse 21, it says, even Moses was afraid here. But he says that we've not come to the old covenant. That's not, that's not where we live. We live in the new covenant. We've come to the new covenant. The new covenant is mediated by the blood of Jesus. So Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus gave us life. He spilled his blood so that we could come boldly into the presence of God. And so there's no more reason to fear but to rejoice and to keep running the race. Okay, but, but does that mean, since we've come to the new covenant, since we have this unshakable kingdom, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, does this mean that we don't have to listen anymore? In other words, oh, I'm, I'm saved now. I'm a Christian, so I can do whatever I want. I'm going to make it, so I'm, I'm gonna, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if I sin. It's not a big deal. No, says the writer of Hebrews. In verse 25, we get this uh, sort of a sobering warning. He says, he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
Because if Israel, under the old covenant, did not escape God's wrath when they refused to listen, we will certainly not escape God's wrath if we refuse the very one who bought us with his blood. Okay, so then if I'm not going to refuse him, what does it look like to not refuse this one who is speaking? And he tells us in verse 28, he tells us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So first of all, be grateful. Second of all, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, he says. Okay, so if I'm not going to refuse the one who's speaking, what is it? how do I not refuse him? Well, I actually ex- uh, give to God acceptable worship. Well, what is acceptable worship? I mean, does acceptable worship mean that I come here on Sunday morning? Like, I just show up on Sunday. Is that acceptable worship? Um, is, is acceptable worship, uh, like, does that mean that I, I sing really loudly? And if, even if I'm out of key, I sing, and I don't care what the person in front of me thinks, I just sing. Does that, is that acceptable worship? Or does acceptable worship mean that I'm so overcome with what I'm singing about that it, it just, it's just written all over my face? Like I have a joyful face, and I lift my hands and raise my hands, and I'm just so excited about what I'm, what I'm singing that I raise my hands. Is that what acceptable worship looks like? What is acceptable worship? Well, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with coming to church. There's nothing wrong with singing. There's nothing wrong with being so overwhelmed by what you're singing that it's written all over your face and you raise your hands. There's nothing wrong with these things, but that's not necessarily what it means to offer to God acceptable worship. That is one facet of worship. That is the corporate facet of worship. But the corporate facet of worship, what we do when we come here together, should be a reflection of what's going on in my heart throughout the whole week. You say, how do you know that? Because in Hebrews chapter 13, the author gives us an understanding of what acceptable worship to God looks like, and it's a matter of the heart. True, genuine worship that is acceptable to God is a heart of faith towards God that is demonstrated in a changed lifestyle. Okay, we've talked through several of these already in Hebrews chapter 13. So we actually love each other. Let brotherly love continue, he says in verse 2. But not only do we love each other, we love those around who are strangers. We're, be hospitable to the strangers. Be hospitable to those who are in prison and, and those who are mistreated. So we, so we live in this way. We also hold marriage in high regard. We see that in verse 4. We don't treat it lightly and we don't take sexual activity outside of it. We, we, we hold marriage in high regard. And then in verse 5, it says that we live content with what we have. And this is what it looks like to offer to God acceptable worship. These are the things that we do. Now, last month, Pastor Wood covered contentment. And he asked me this morning to talk about this topic of security in these verses here. And I think what we find in these verses, now we've kind of done a quick overview of this context, I think what we find in these verses is that Security is actually the motivation for contentment. Security is the motivation for contentment. Do you see that in verse 5? He says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So let's just walk through this verse very quickly here. Verse 5. 
the first phrase there, it says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money. So if you like, if you're kind of like an, anybody, anybody like a Greek nerd, anybody like you like to hear about how, how the, the ancient languages work? Okay, both of you. Awesome. That's great. Um, in, the, uh, in the original language, this is only three words. So we have this big, long phrase. It's only three words. It's, uh, there's one word that says, uh, uh, not loving money, your life. So it's just these three words. And I think it's interesting, uh, he uses a, a philia word. I know you just said you don't like Greek, but I'm going to give you some anyways. Okay, um, the philia, I don't, I don't usually like to reference Greek, but, um, but, but today I think this is important because it actually helps us to understand something. So he uses this, this, this root word, philia, three times in these five verses. So the first one is in verse one. He says, let brotherly love. Now you guys know what word that is. Anybody know, what, what, what word is that? What's brotherly love? Philadelphia. Yeah, we've got a city named after, right? So there's Philadelphia, brotherly love, in verse 1. There's Philazenia in verse 2. That's loving the stranger. That's, where, that's why it's, written, uh, it's translated, show hospitality to strangers. And then in this, wor- in this verse, in verse 5, we have this word, aphilargyros. And you're like, what did the preacher just call me? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't just call you a name. It's okay. Um, but this is the word. It's aphilargyros. It's, it's the word, so a means not, philia, phila is love, and argyros is silver. So not loving silver, not loving money. And I think it's interesting that he uses these three philia words because what that helps us to understand is, there, is that there's two things we are supposed to love. There's one thing we're not supposed to love. And what this helps us to understand is that loving money or loving stuff is really loving myself. So the other words are love brothers, love strangers. Don't love money. Don't love yourself. And I think it's important to clarify this morning that, um, that having money is not the problem here. That's not, he's, not, he's not saying you should not have money. You can have lots of money and you can have no money. And neither means that you're content. And neither means that you're discontent. And so it's not necessarily a bad test. You're, if you're trying to think, okay, how could I understand if I'm, if I'm content or not? Well, it's not necessarily a bad test to just kind of take a step back and think about your own life. Okay, where am I at in life? What is my attitude towards my stuff? Do I love my stuff? That's not necessarily a bad test. But maybe a better test would be to take a step back and look and see what your response is when you lose your stuff. Because when, you're lo- when you lose your stuff the real you comes out. And that helps you to see, am I content or discontent? But then he goes on, he says, so so, uh, keep your life free from the love of money. And then he says, be content with what you have. And since he's talking, he's just been talking about money. So he probably has something, I mean, probably what's in his mind is he's saying, be content with the possessions, the things that you have. But he uses a phrase that seems to indicate more than just what you have, but your, your entire present circumstances. Be content with everywhere that God has put you, with where God has put you, with who God has put you with, and with what God has given you. And the point is that contentment is a disposition towards life. It's a disposition towards life that you are satisfied with where God has put you and what God has given you. That's what contentment is. But I'm not going to say more about contentment because we, uh, Pastor Wood talked about that last week, or last month, so I'm not going to preach a sermon again. But today, what I want you to see is that the motivation for contentment 
how do we do this? Do I just like flip a switch and all of a sudden I'm content now? How do we actually do this? Well, there's motivation. And I think what we find here is that discontentment is a security issue. Discontentment is a security issue. So when I want stuff, it's because I want that stuff to do something for me. Okay, it might be that I'm worried that I might lose my stuff. And if I lose my stuff, then I will be uncomfortable or I might be dangerous. It might be a, a dangerous spot. And so what, I want more money. Why? So that I want more stuff. Why? So that I can feel more comfortable or less dangerous. It's a security issue. Or it might be that um, I want more stuff because people with lots of stuff and cool stuff have lots of fun and have lots of friends. And I want lots of fun and lots of friends. And so I want more stuff. <laughs> but that's a, that's a security issue. I want this thing to do something for me, to, to help me feel secure. Or it might be that I don't like the difficult circumstances I find myself in or the difficult people God has put in my life. Or in other words, I don't like the disciplining hand of God in my life. And so I want different circumstances or I want different people because I want comfort or ease or something else. Discontentment is a security issue. And so it should be no wonder to us that right after he calls us to be content, he actually gives us this problem and the motivation of the security that we have in God. He says, be content, see that in verse 5, because or for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the motivation for being content is the fact that God will never leave you. There's security that we have in Jesus. Now, think about this motivation here that we have. Because um, it, it could be that we've uh, grown accustomed to phrases. You know, there, there are some phrases in the Bible that we grow so accustomed to that we kind of just rattle them off. Um, and it's not a bad thing to rattle them off. It's a good thing. Um, but sometimes maybe we've, we kind of forget its full significance. Um, first of all, the author here is quoting from an Old Testament passage. So if you have a Bible that marks uh, passages, you might have a little letter in front of the phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then down at the bottom, you might have a footnote that says Joshua 1.5. And if you like to write in your Bibles, you could write next to Joshua 1.5, you could write Genesis 28.15 and Deuteronomy 31.8. Genesis 28, 15, and Deuteronomy 31, 8. Because it's hard to tell which passage he's actually quoting from in the Old Testament here. But all of these passages, all three of them, would be great studies to help you understand what's going on behind this passage here. But, but when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, okay, he, he begins that phrase with a double negative. Okay, so all of you students of grammar in English, in English, when you use a double negative, what does that mean? A positive, right? Okay, this text is not without its difficulties. That means it's difficult, right? Jordan is not without issues. <laughs> yes, we all know that. I've got lots of issues. Uh, a double negative in English, in our grammar, means a, means a positive. But in the Greek language, what they would do is they would attach a, a, a second negative to the first one to strengthen the negative. So literally it reads, no, not will I leave you. No, never 
will I forsake you? And I think this is important because God says to every single child of his, no, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. Uh, The word leave there, it means to unfasten from. And the word forsake there means to abandon. And God says to every single person that's that's his child, he says, no, I will never unfasten myself from you. I will never abandon you to rot and die. No matter how much it feels like God has left you, you are not forsaken. Your difficult circumstances are not an indication that God has left or he has unfastened himself from you. Even your sin is not too great to make God leave and run from you. If you are a child of God, then the blood of Jesus has been spent for your sin and he will never leave you. He will hold you fast. He will hold you to the end. I mean, I think it's, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's neat how this word, so this word forsaken, I will never forsake you. The same word is used by Jesus himself on the cross when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. He was forsaken for you. And so you have this security. Because Jesus was forsaken for you, you will never be forsaken by God, ever. And no matter what you're experiencing in your life right now, you are not forsaken. God will not leave you. Now, this is great news, and it's a huge encouragement. But if you have read the whole letter of Hebrews at some point, then you may have left that reading with a very big and important question, especially when it comes to this topic of security. So here, I mean, God says, I will never leave you. You are entirely secure. But when we come to the book of Hebrews, we read some very interesting questions. If you've ever read the whole letter of Hebrews, you have read some sobering warnings that may have produced some disturbing questions in your mind. There are five main warning passages in Hebrews. And in these warning passages, we read things like this. Pay pay close attention to what you've heard, lest we drift away from it. Whoa, you mean I could drift away? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Yikes. Or this one, it's impossible for those who have tasted the heavenly gift and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Yikes. Or if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I mean, these are like sobering warnings. And they cause some questions, some very significant and important questions in our minds as we think about this topic of security. And that is this, am I actually secure in Christ? Am I really secure? Can a Christian lose his salvation? Can I actually begin the race, become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus 
I'm, I'm actually saved. I'm a Christian. And walk down life and at some point make a decision to turn and, and, and turn away from God and lose my salvation. I mean, is that, is that what Hebrews is teaching? This is a very extremely important question to answer. And so let's see if we can maybe explain some of these warning passages as it relates to our security in Christ. And to understand uh, these warning passages, there's something that might be helpful for us to understand. That is, Hebrews, this letter of Hebrews, was actually written as a sermon. Okay, it, this is written to be, to be preached in a sermon. It's like, you, it'd be like, you know, Pastor Wood leaves and he leaves a sermon and he puts it right here and I come and I just read through his sermon. And I know some of you are thinking, Jordan, why don't you just read through Hebrews? Because that would be a much better sermon. And I agree, it would be a much better sermon, yes. Um, but just, just okay, I, I did this math. Just, in, just for some of you who think that I preach long, okay, my sermons are usually about 3,500 words. Uh, Hebrews is almost 7,000 words. So just saying, just saying, if you think I preach long, just, uh, just be thankful that you're not an early Christian. Um, <clears throat> okay, but Hebrews, uh, Hebrews was written as a sermon to be read in a church. And in any given church, in almost every single church, there are three different kinds of people. There are people who are genuinely followers of Jesus. Then there are people who are, they're kind of thinking about it. I'm not sure, you know, I'm just kind of hanging around because I'm not sure what I think about this, but they're really thinking about it. And then there are people who profess to know Christ, but are not genuine believers. And so, the, the, the writer of Hebrews has all three categories in mind. I mean, he's just, he's just writing to a church, a people who gather together, who say they're followers of Jesus or are thinking about being a follower of Jesus. He's writing to all of them. But the author doesn't know which person is which kind of, belie- of, of professor. Like, uh, so, just recently, we went through uh, Mark, Mark 4, and we had these, this parable of the seed and the sower, right? And some seed was like this rocky ground, and the sower sows the seed on the rocky ground, and something springs up, and it looks like life, but then it withers away. Why? Because there is no root, because there is no real, genuine life to begin with. But some of the seed was spread on good soil, and it actually did produce life and fruit. And so the, the, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing this house church in, in, uh, of, of Jews, and he's writing them. He doesn't know which kind of soil is which, kind of pers- or is which person. He doesn't know. And so he's writing to them and, and exhorting, to them, exhorting them that they would not fall away. So does Hebrews teach that you can lose your salvation? And the answer is absolutely not. And I want to show you something. So turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Because I think we have a helpful understanding here of what, what, some of what's going on in these warning passages. So, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 is one of the warning passages. So, you read verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And you say, yikes. I mean, could there be in me an evil, unbelieving heart? I thought I was a follower of Jesus. Could there be in me an evil, unbelieving heart, and might I actually fall away from the living God? Well, look what he says in verse 14. This is really important. In verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay, did you catch the tense of those verbs? 
we have already come to Christ. We've already shared in Christ. We are now in Christ. We already were in the past in Christ. If we continue on to the end. And so what he's helping us to understand is that if we persevere all the way to the end as a Christian, if I hold fast my confession, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, I believe I'm a sinner, I believe Jesus died for me, and I believe my only hope is Jesus. If I hold that all the way to the end till I die, then that perseverance is a sign that I was in Christ from the beginning. In other words, if I continue to run this, if I, if I make a profession of faith, if I let everyone know, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I start, running, I start doing this thing, I start, I start looking like a Christian, I do Christian things, I do what every, every other Christian does, I'm doing these things, but then I turn away, I do not persevere to the end, then it's actually a sign, my lack of perseverance is a sign that I was never in Christ to begin with. So Hebrews does not teach that you can lose your salvation. It teaches that if I continue to the end, it is a sign that I was in Christ from the beginning. And what I love about about Hebrews is that for almost every one of these warning passages, for almost every one of them, there's a nearby grounding promise that God will preserve his own. He will. So all the way through this letter of Hebrews, we have this two-pronged fork. On the one hand, he exhorts us, don't give up, don't fall away, don't stop running the race, continue running the race. And on the other hand, at the same time, he says, if you are in Christ, God will not let you stop running the race. God will keep you all the way to the end. You will not give up, he says. And here's what I want you guys to see this morning. Both of these things, both the warnings and the promises, are the means by which God keeps his children in the race. These warnings here, they're they're not intended to make us afraid. So you should not read that warning Take care, make sure there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in you. You should not leave that warning and think, oh, Mo, did I, uh, did I say the right words? Did I, did, I, uh, did I say it just like I was supposed to? Just, did I say it just like that person told me to say it? Did I say it at the right time? Did I really, really, really mean it? Not just really, really, but did I really, really mean it? And, and do I, did I remember the day, like the actual day? Do I have that date written down in my Bible? Do I remember the day and do I remember the hour? Do I remember the person that was there? Do I remember everything perfectly vividly? No, that's, that is not what these warnings are supposed to do. What these warnings are supposed to do in us I read that warning, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So here's what should happen in the life of a Christian. Okay, on any given day, I'm going to sin. So what should happen is, I should think to myself, that sin does not look like Jesus. That sin looks like a hardened heart that doesn't trust Jesus. And instead of saying, oh no, did I do this right? No. What, instead, what, what should happen is, there should be in, in my heart... I should ask the question, am I in Christ? Not did I do something at some time, am I in Christ? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I believe that I'm a sinner? Do I believe that he died to pay for my sins so that I can be forever with him? Do I believe that? 
And you know what this warning should, ha- should do in us? Yes, I believe that. <laughs> so this warning should cause me to think, okay, this sin does not look like Jesus. Am I in Jesus? Yes, I'm in Jesus. So this warning, sh- what it should actually produce in me is repentance. It should encourage in me repentance. No, this doesn't look like Jesus. I love Jesus. He's my, he, he, where else can I go? He has the words of life. So I repent and I trust in him again. That's what these warnings are intended to do in us. And we need both the warnings and the promises, don't we? For those of you that have uh, been a Christian long enough, I think you understand what this is like. There are seasons in the life of a Christian where you need a kick in the pants. (laughs) Because you're not following what Jesus says. There are things in your life that don't look like Jesus. Do you know what what you need in that season? You need the warning. Don't, Don't give up. Stop your sin. Turn to Jesus. Don't fall away from the faith. Don't give up. But if you've been a Christian for any season of time, then you know that there are also seasons as a Christian where you are very weary. And you begin to ask yourself the question, is this worth it? Am I even going to make it home? Because I just looked, I just look back and I've seen all the sin and I'm so, am I even going to make it home? And do you know what you need in that season? You need the promise that God will not let you fall away. We need both. We need the warnings and we need the promises. And don't you just love the book of Hebrews for this reason? I mean, these warnings and these promises blow our minds. Does, here, two questions. Does God sovereignly keep us or must you continue to run the race? Yes. <laughs> yes. And so Hebrews, it does not undermine God's sovereignty and it does not undermine my responsibility. In fact, it does the opposite. It, it, it extremes both. <laughs> God is so sovereign in my life that he can use warnings and promises to motivate in me the free will to choose to repent, the freedom to actually make choices to continue running the race so that I would continue all the way to the end. Do you know where this leaves us? Wow. God is that sovereign. And let's just close here with verse 6 in in chapter 13 because I think what we find here is that when you understand that God keeps you like this, if God is so sovereign that he can keep us in this way while still calling us to continue running the race, it's not that I don't have responsibility. I have absolute responsibility. But if God can do this in, in, in this way, if God is so sovereign that he can keep me, then I can confidently say, just like the writer says in verse 6 where he quotes Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man, including myself, do to me? I will not fear. The response to all of this is a response of faith. God, I believe you. God, I will rest 
in the fact that you are enough and you have given us an unshakable kingdom. And I will rest in that. I mean, think about this. What is the worst thing that could happen to you in this life? Death, right? Oh, you mean that thing that means that I get to live freely and joyfully with no sin and no pain with Jesus for all of eternity? (laughs) Sounds like a deal! (laughs) So we have complete security in Christ. What can man do to me? I will not fear. I will rest. And so where are you this morning? Today, I am on purpose not giving you a lot of action to take. You know, sometimes when we listen to God's Word, there are, there are times when God's Word is preached, and there are some clear actions. You're like, you need, to, you need to go out, you need to forgive that person. You need to kill sin in your life. You need, to, you need to take the gospel and share it with your friends. There are some clear actions that you need to take. But sometimes when we approach God's Word, there are some passages in God's Word that simply call us to rest in what He has said. God will keep us. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you are in a season of life where you need the warning. Maybe it's the area of contentment. Maybe there is an action that you need to take. Maybe you need to stop buying. You need to stop amassing things. You need to start giving as a demonstration that you are trusting God. Maybe you need the warning. But it may be this morning that you are in a season of life where you are overwhelmed and you're weary. And this morning, be encouraged. Because if you are in Christ, God will never, no, not ever, will he leave you or forsake you. And therefore, we will not fear, because what can man do to me? Let's pray. God, we want to thank you this morning that this is true. Thank you that we have complete and entire security in you. Thank you that for every single one of us in this room that knows you, that has put our faith and trust in Jesus alone, thank you that we can be confident that you will hold us fast all the way to the end. You will not let our soul be lost because your promises last. So Lord, would you cause us to rest in this security that we have in you. And would this be motivation and encouragement to continue running the race because we know that we can run knowing that you will keep us all the way to the end. So would you encourage us and motivate us by your care for us, your love for us, and your sovereign keeping hand. In Jesus' name, amen.